Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is Jeffrey Lidke. Jeffrey is chair of the Department of Religion and Philosophy at Berry College in Rome, Georgia. A graduate of the doctoral program at the University of California, Santa Barbara, Dr. Lidke's primary research interests include tantrism, Indian aesthetics, and the neuroscience of contemplative practice. His publications include Vishvarupa Mandir, a study of Changu Narayan Nepal's most ancient temple, and the forthcoming Beyond and Within the Three Cities, Shakta Tantra and the Paradox of Power in Nepala Mandala in addition to a number of reviews, chapters, and articles. Jeffrey's study of South Asian religions has included extensive field research in India, Nepal, Bali, and Bhutan, as well as personal training in music, tabla, meditation, martial arts, and yoga. So hello, Jeffrey. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hello, Jacob. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we get started talking about your new book, which has yet to be released, is that correct? No, actually, my bio needs to be revised. So it, it was released in, in early January. It is on the market. Oh, excellent. Great. So we're going to talk about that a little bit about that in a moment because I really enjoyed reading that, that book. But before we get started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your story, your own personal story of how you, um, how you came to study these practices, these traditions, and... And, you know, a little bit about that, that whole trajectory. Great. Thank you for that interest. It's a great question. The primary influence really comes from my parents. I was born into a household uh, and, and a, just a life circumstance where my parents were very interested in various religious and spiritual paths. And by the time I was five, they were deeply immersed in the study of yoga and meditation, uh, meeting such established teachers from India as Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, mm. uh, later the Dalai Lama, the Karmapa, and Swami Muktananda. Mm. And so I was brought to a, a, no, a number of formal ceremonies. I was even initiated into a mantra tradition at age five. Um, I received Shaktipat from Muktananda at age 10. And that same year, I received the black hat ceremony from the Karmapa. And I've always looked at that year in my life, that was 1978, and I was in the, they both came to the Bay Area. It's um, really, they were literally planting seeds for the unfolding of, of my life, my professional career. Both of them represent tantric traditions. Muktananda's coming from the Hindu Shakta and Shaiva tantric tradition, and then the Karmapa is a Kagyu Tibetan Buddhist uh, tantric master. Um, and you know, I received those initiations, and then I went through a somewhat standard um, teendom, right? Junior high through high school. I was just mostly interested in sports and girls and things like that. And at age 16, um, I had a very powerful and unexpected meditative spiritual experience actually on the on the holy night of Shivaratri that really opened my eyes to the validity of the traditions that my parents had introduced me to, but in which I really didn't have any personal interest to that point. Uh, and from that point on, I got very interested in not only meditation practice, but also particularly the, the philosophical systems associated with them. 
And after I graduated high school, uh, went on to pursue a BA at the University of Colorado at Boulder, I didn't realize until the first orientation session that actually religious studies was an academic discipline that I could get my degree in. And that literally, or it seemed to me that a bell went off and it was very clear to me that, oh, this is my course. And I really knew from that point, I was 18, um, that I was going to pursue a PhD in religious studies, particularly focusing on Asian traditions. And, and then I would teach and write about it. And uh, that's how my courses unfolded. Um, as a junior at the University of Colorado at Boulder, I went to, I was a member, transferred for one year to the University of Wisconsin-Madison to do their college year in Nepal program. Spent a year in the Kathmandu Valley area, traveled also to India and later to Bali. Came back the next year on the Naropa University program. Uh, then went on to pursue my master's and PhD at Santa Barbara. And in 1996, I was a Fulbright dissertation fellow, and that gave me a full year of funding to return to the Valley um, and continue my studies. With my first visit to Nepal, I, I wrote my first book, Vishwarupa Mandir, uh, which is a study of a, an ancient pagoda named Changunarayan. And then with my dissertation study, that resulted in many years later, that was 1996, my book took 20 years to come out. That's this current Mm. book, uh, The Goddess Within and, and Beyond the Three Cities. Um, it was during that time also that I began my study of tabla, which has always been a very important part of my own meditative uh, practice. Um, I went to Muktananda's ashram in Ganeshpuri multiple times, and then also met a number of teachers uh, in Nepal, particularly Stanishwar Timosina, um, whose, whose voice is a very important one in this latest book of mine, as he is not only uh, a really internationally renowned scholar of Sanskrit and Indian philosophical and religious traditions, but also um, an initiated guru within the Sarva Amnaya tradition of, of tantric, uh, Hindu tantrism that the book is based on. Mm. So where does, he, where does he teach now? San Diego State University. Okay. He's professor of Indology there. Excellent. So your your path starts as you as you mentioned from from the perspective of, pra of a practitioner. Among other traditions, you were involved with you know the city city yoga lineage as you mentioned. You were initiated or you received Shaktipat from Muktananda. So uh, you know at what point did this become a more scholarly interest? Was that always kind of there? And then I'm interested to hear how. You know, in this new wave, it's becoming more normal, of course, to hear about scholar practitioners. And, and how I discovered your work was actually through, you know, Sutra Journal, which um, established itself as a, as a platform for work by scholar practitioners. And I'm, I'm just interested to hear how this um, dynamic or this kind of dual role of, of scholar and practitioner has played out in your life. Have you, have you, you know, have you encountered any conflicts in that kind of um, in that mode, or has it always been relatively complementary? No, I've definitely ex experienced conflicts. Uh, they've ultimately been conflicts that have, I think, resulted in some really important understanding. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I see the path, my path as a scholar and a practitioner is completely intertwined. And, and of course, this isn't unusual. I mean, 
the whole idea of Christian theology is that you're yeah. you're a faith-based scholar, and, yeah. and your faith drives your scholarship, and vice versa. Um, but there is a kind of naive approach to faith-based scholarship that I think has to be shattered. Um, I think you have to go to through a, a kind of dark night esque um, questioning of of everything that you understood to be the case. Um, as you really move forward in your understanding of what it means to be a faith-based scholar. And I, I definitely had that experience under the tutelage of Gerald James Larson at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Mm. Um, I, I definitely came into that program of very much an insider's perspective, a sense that because I'm an initiate, and at that time I was a, I was a disciple of Guru Maichid Velasananda, who was mm. one of two successors to Muktananda, and um, just really did think, you know, I know I've, I've got this. And Larson had great respect for my immersion in the tradition, but also could clearly see the degree to which I was really wearing kind of interpretive blinders and seeing things really only from one perspective. Um, and we had an encounter which really forced me to call into question my faith. I, but in a sense, I lost my faith, but then I came back to it and realized that I could balance the insiders with the outsider's perspective. I could be more critical. I could engage, the, you know, at, at the time, Foucault's post-structuralist philosophy was in vogue, and, you know, I dove into that and thought through that lens. And, um, you know, in a lot of ways, my book reflects that attempt to balance the insider and, and the critical outsider's perspective. Um, and that's really been an ongoing process for me. Um, I, I would like to think that I do have faith, but it's a faith that's been nuanced. And, and in a lot of ways, you know, to put it simply, I, I, my journey really began, I was a theist grounded in Hindu traditions, and now I'm a non-theist grounded in Buddhist traditions. Okay. Um, but at the same time, the Trikakala, the non-dualism of Trikakala Tantra was a bridge for me between mm. Hindu theism and, and Buddhist non-theism. And really, as, as I've looked at the Trikakala traditions and then, you know, the, the sophisticated um, Dzogchen and other traditions of Buddhism, it seems to me ultimately they come to the same place. Right, right. So that's very interesting. So you, I want to go back just a little bit to di, uh, what you're talking about being a disciple of Guru Mai and, and my own understanding of of the Siddhi Yoga lineage, at least, is that, you know, there's an emphasis on the, uh, the I guess, male representation of divinity in the form of Shiva. And, but your recent book, and so we'll kind of use this as a segue into talking about it, The Goddess Beyond and Within the Three Cities, is focused, um, you know, almost exclusively on a, on a goddess-centered tradition, a Shakta, um, Shakti-centered tradition. So um, what moved you in that direction? And was that, was that a part of your own journey toward this kind of non-theistic um, uh, Buddhist lineage that you're participating in now, or was just this just merely a scholarly interest? You know, there is a perspective from which I see my scholarship and my life journey kind of unfolding at once, kind of systematically and logically, and then also somewhat organically. Mm-hmm. Um, within the Siddhi Yoga tradition, there is 
the focus on Shiva, but there's also the focus on the goddess and particularly Kundalini Shakti. Right, right. And, and within the tantric traditions themselves, from which Muktananda drew the inspiration for his, really his creation, Siddha yeah. Yoga, his masterpiece, grounded authentically in all sorts of traditions, Shaivite and Shakta, God-centered and goddess-centered. And in in reality, historically, the Shaiva lineages and the Shakta lineages were exactly that, historical lineages of teachers and students, Mm. students receiving initiations based in texts from teachers. And those, the Shaiva texts would focus on Shiva and include Shiva-centered mantras, mystical sounds and diagrams, etc., and then the Shakta lineage is the same story, guru and disciples you know, receiving this wisdom. But tremendous overlap across those lineages, and, and then also lineages like Trikakala, which say, okay, here's the Shiva lineage, here's the Shakta lineage. Well, Shiva and Shakti, they're just manifestations of one ultimate reality. Um, we embody all of those. We give the initiation for all of those. And so within that kind of Kala context, the pursuit of Shaivite wisdom and the pursuit of Shakta wisdom, it's really the same pursuit. Mm. So that's a specific, because that's sort of been my understanding, is that, you know, Shiva and Shakti transcend kind of a more, you know, crude sort of gender binary, that we're not, we're not, we're talking about forces or qualities, we're not talking about, um, you know, a kind of gendered absolute in that sort of way but are you just are you saying that even that more esoteric understanding is the idea of a particular lineage stream in trikakala yes okay so so there are there are other traditions in which the shiva and shakti are considered more to be gendered oh the trikakala considers them in it no no right right no i would just say when you look at Hinduism as a whole, mm-hmm. right, you're talking about, you know, 1.2 billion people spread out across the world, centered in India, with a very long history, and it's really a massive set of traditions and, and ideas about this, that, and the other. As you explore the spectrum of Hinduism on the ground, as it were, you do encounter people you know, that are just Hindus living their lives that really aren't that fussed about, yeah, Shiva is a male god and Shakti is a, a female goddess and they're gendered and what's, you know, what's the problem? I'm worshiping them. But, um, and I think, of course, we see that in the West too, right? Literalist interpretations right. and God is male, et cetera, and so forth. But definitely in the more esoteric, abstract systems of Tantra, yeah, all of that d- dissolves, it becomes symbolic. I mean, of course, there is the gender of Shiva in in men like you and me, and there is the gender of Shakti in women, but all men and all women contain Shiva and Shakti within themselves, and that becomes more and more subtle as you start talking about Shiva as a witnessing consciousness, and Shakti is that dynamic energy which manifests before that consciousness as the embodied universe. Mm, yeah. That makes sense. Did I get? Oh yeah, question? definitely. That's a that was a really beautiful description. So now to to your book, the goddess beyond and within the three, three cities. Let's just get very specific here. So, who is the goddess of this text, and what are the three cities, and what is their significance? Right. Well, that's a, you know, it's, it's again a very multi level answer. I'll just start yeah. Are you. With- I mean, you wrote a whole book about it, so it would have to be. <laughs> so. I- 
I try to respect the spectrum of meanings and, and not let the esoteric, more abstract, symbolic override the historically grounded literalist. Right. Um, but start, starting from the, his, the, the literalist, the historical, the goddess of my book is Tripura Sundari, the beautiful one who is beyond and within the three cities. And this is a, a form of, of Parvati um, who is intimately linked with um, her consort Shiva in historical traditions. And there are wonderful narratives about her. And she's she's uh, looks a bit like the goddess Lakshmi in her anthropomorphic depiction. She wears beautiful, typically red and gold uh, garments, right? And she has a crown and she's lovely and she has four arms and she has symbols in those arms, etc., and so forth. And she was the goddess for a particular lineage known as Sri Vidya, which was a very important Shakta or goddess-centered tantric lineage that had manifestations, um, instantiations in, in the north, in Kashmir, and also in the south, South India, and then also uh, in Nepal. And, and scholars debate you know, where she originated. You know, naturally, the folks of the respective regions are going to, you know, argue their case and scholars you know have their arguments a lot of stuff certainly originates in the himalayas when it comes to india uh, and the subcontinent of course nepal is smack dab in the himalayas mm -hmm. where you have mount everest um and so that it's it's a study of that historical tradition and really the symbolism of the goddess most particularly as she's represented by what's called her para rupa her supreme symbol which is as the Sri Chakra um, Yantra. Now, as we dive into that tradi tradition, the understanding of what that goddess is becomes very rich. Um, and in my study, I try to take into account, well, how does, you know, the, 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 the street cleaner on the streets of Bhaktapur in Kathmandu understand this goddess? How does a musician understand her? How does the artist who paints her understand her? How does a child understand her um, and uh, go all the way to some of the most sophisticated esoteric texts which exist in abundance in Nepal, in the homes of practitioners and also the National Archives. And most particularly, I focused on a ninth century scripture called the Nitya Shodashi Karnava, which means the ocean of the eternal 16. And it's, mm. it's a really a liturgical prayer um, to this goddess, Tripura Sundari, and it includes important commentaries by Shivananda and Vidyananda, who were both initiates in the Trikakala lineage of Abhinavagupta, and they provide this very rich Trikakala, non-dualist understanding of who that goddess is. And I argue that that interpretation kind of is at the upper spectrum of, of you know, interpretive kind of sophistication uh, it doesn't exclude the other interpretations, and really what I try to do is, is tackle them all. And um, I would say at, at the most refined mystical level, the question, who is the goddess you're writing about, who is that? The answer would be from within the tradition of Abhinavagupta, she is your own deepest sense of self. Mm. That experience of self that you're having now, the, the I consciousness, that is the goddess. Mm. Right? And so the tradition is in a fundamentally about making people self-aware. And um, right, and so that's 
that is that is the spectrum of interpretations. And as far as her name goes, so Tripura Sundari, Sundari means beautiful, Tripura um, is the three cities in one interpretation. And in that interpretation, the three cities really refers to all of the triads that comprise the created world, mm. whether it's the functions of creation, destruction, and dissolution that are ongoing, whether it is uh, the three phases of time, past, present, and future, um, whether it is the three angles of the mystical trigram, it's, it's all, the idea is creation, and she is creation. She's the goddess of creation, the three cities. But you can also render Tripura etymologically such that the long A on Pura means prior to or previous. And so the meaning here is she's the goddess who is beyond the three cities. In other words, she is the source and cause and embodiment of creation, but she's also prior to it and beyond it. Mm. And that basic understanding of a goddess who is within creation and also prior to and, and, and beyond it, really lays at the heart of what my thesis is in terms of trying to understand this tradition in terms of its message about what it means to be embodied and living in the world, and then also the possibility of, of experiencing a kind of transcendence to this world, because this world can be a trap, it can be a cause of delusion, and obviously all things embodied die. Mm. Right. So this is, as with all Indian yogic traditions, this is a tradition that seeks and promises immortality. Mm, beautiful. So is this, does this triad of the three cities, does this also extend to, um, I'm thinking of uh, Paul Muller Ortega's, uh, you know, triadic heart of Shiva, where, yeah. where we have this split between the knower, the knowing and the known. Is that, so, Absolutely. so any kind yeah. of triadic expression, right, that you find all in the Okay. That, yeah, on a real fundamental level, because then also those those three correspond to mystical syllables, and then that leads you into your yogic and mantric and ritual practice. And yes, all all of those uh, meanings of the triad that Paul unpacks are understood and assumed by Shivananda and Vidyananda, and and as they analyze this goddess, this is the meaning that they're yoking. Mm. So, you know, when we when we think of a triad, we think of a triangle, and that sort of then um, points to this um, geometrical symbol, the Sri Yantra, which you talk about and which is fundamental to this tradition. Can you talk a little bit about, well, first of all, what is the difference between a Yantra and a mandala? This is a question that people ask all the time. Is there a difference, or is it just two words for essentially the same thing? So that's my first question. And then the second is, what is what is the importance of sacred geometry? Like, how does this come to become such an uh, 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 play such a crucial role in the kind of ritual life of this tradition? Okay, yeah, those are excellent questions. And the question is, are yantras and mandalas pretty much the same thing? It, it's not at all a dumb question. Uh, and in, to some degree, yes, both yantras and mandalas um, are paintings or representations of sacred spaces. Um, but it is important to understand that the word yantra literally means tool. Mm -hmm. And... Yantras are specifically tools for meditative practice. Mm, okay. And typically, almost always, 
Um, they are aniconic. They're, they're geometrical structures. Um, mandala literally means map, suggesting territory. And mandalas are pre precisely that. They can present geographical territories or celestial heavenly territories or the territory associated with a saint, a Buddha, or some other you know, heavenly figure. Um, what gets confusing is people do, there are contexts in which mandalas are used for meditation and ritual. And in, in those contexts, they do have a kind of tool-like function. Mm -hmm. Right, but they're also um, they can be just precisely that representations of sacred space. They can adorn temples and uh, monasteries, and 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 not solely just be used in meditative practice. But that that when it a yantra is really for the purpose of ritual meditative practice. Mm. Okay, so let's now move a little bit into a tradition that you talk about a lot in your book, which you, the Sarva Amnaya, am I pronouncing that correctly? Correct. Okay, good. So, um, you know, this was a really beautiful um, system that you described for a number of different reasons, but, um, and I was surprised to hear, you know, in your book, you mentioned that it's been very little studied. And um, so I'd love to, for you to talk a little bit about it, you know, what's unique about it and what the significance is, you know, of, of it, you know, laid down next to all the whole, you know, the whole kind of, um, or the many variants of, of Shaiva Shakta traditions. Yeah, excellent. So, really, the world's foremost uh, scholar on the Sarvamnaya is Mark Vichkowski. Uh, yeah. And he prefers the term Shadamnaya. Okay. Amnaya means stream or transmission. So, the transmission uh, of the six, which is a meaning that's associated with the six faces of Shiva's Shiva Linga, the, the symbol that represents Shiva and has four faces in the cardinal directions and then one upper face and one so-called lower face, all associated with these uh, transmissions, which refers to scriptural revelations. And with all scriptural revelations in Tantra, they are simultaneously theologies, mythologies, liturgical practices, and meditative systems, all in one. Mm. And so the idea then is that when you talk about a Shad Amnaya system or Sarva Amnaya, as uh, Stanishwar Timalsina preferred to use, really meaning the same system, meaning all of those transmissions, all six of them, Sarva Amnaya. Um, when you get a system like that, and, and you have it in Nepal, it was clearly in Kashmir, we see it in other places in India. What you have is you have someone like an Abhinavagupta who's knowledge of tantric literature is so vast, so profound, so all comprehensive, he has the ability to systematize it, to bring it all together, and the brilliance to say, all of that revelation which happened all over, it happened in the north, it happened in the south, it happened in the west, it happened in the east, some came from above, some came from below, um, all of that, it's a part of the one cosmic revelation of, of the one divine reality, which you can call Paramashiva, or you can call Devi, um, other names. And, and the thing is, 
someone like Abhinava Gupta, and this translates into what we see into the Nepalese tradition, uh, the argument is, and it's all interrelated. It's not independent systems of revelation. It's really meant to be interrelated. It's all these mantras, it's all these practices, and you're supposed to do them all systematically and in order by someone who can show you the sequence of initiations and take you through the process. And the reason that you're supposed to do this, and you can see, you can see how this connects to the Muktananda uh, lineage in terms of similar patterns of practice, what, what was being argued by Abhinava Gupta and, and Sarva Amnaya adepts like Staneshwatim Osina is that there's a very real spiritual, physical, emotional transformation that happens as you receive these initiations. And that process of transformation is grounded in the awakening of the Kundalini Shakti. Mm. And now, they're taking you through the process of bringing that Kundalini Shakti to, to its final resting place in the crown of the head. Yeah, and what, one thing that was I thought very interesting about that is that is uh, you mentioned that there are six kind of streams of, of revelation or initiation, and those are mapped onto the six chakras, which I'm sure you know contemporary practitioners would love to hear about this because it seems that in this system is the kind of I don't know if it's right to say original, but one of the kind of um, traditional kind of systematic. Um, uh, uses of this of this system. So I'd love for you to talk to, about that a little bit. Is this is this where we originally find the chakras, or are the chakra are the chakras actually um, earlier than this? Do we see them? F- and this is sort of a, a new kind of transformation or appropriation of the chakras. So when you say do we find them, do you, do you mean this particular interpretation of which goddesses and which? Mantras or just... Well, I mean, I mean, so oftentimes we hear that the chakras, you know, are originated with the tantric tradition, um, but I'm just curious if this is where we find them or if this was something that was pre-existing. No, I don't think so. I think, you know, in this, the, I think um, one of your teachers, right, uh, Harish Wallace, um, has done a, a blog and maybe an article, uh, definitely he's published a very nice piece on, you know, that we, we get information about the chakras from a number of different texts and historical contexts in India. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think one of the, the very important sources is medical. Right? Yeah. It's medical traditions trying to understand what's going on in the body, the flow of breath and blood, but the idea of also the body of an energetic system. So nadis and chakras come up in those contexts. And Tantra really, because Tantra was all about systematizing all the systems of knowledge. Tantra right. wasn't supposed to contradict anything. It was supposed to say, well, given what the the doctors are saying and given what the musicians are experiencing, given what the politicians want and, and you want, this is this is what connects it all together. So I see. Chakra, you know, understanding of the subtle physiology, it predates Tantra. Mm. Tantra is claiming to be a science, right? Right fundamentally, and it's a science that's grounded on the idea of the logic or the wisdom of the body, the Deha Vidya. So science, so the tantrics were very, you know, they were happy with, okay, yeah, this brilliant medical stuff, we're going to take this, but they add, they definitely embellished it, they added to it, different tantric traditions have different understandings of which goddesses are where and which mantras should be associated with different yeah. chakras, different numbers of chakras, um, and that's where I think Harish in his article was trying to walk a delicate line, one that I really respected and, and, 
and say, look, I'm not saying this stuff is made up, but there is a kind of you know level, I don't want to quote him, but I would put it a kind of um, interpretive creativity within these different traditions that suggests that it's not that they're not saying, it's not that they're saying it's not literal, mm-hmm. but but what they're saying is, it, well, it's it's beyond. It's we're talking about energy. We're talking about consciousness. And what we're trying to say is, if you engage in meditative, mantric practices, you can do profound things to your energetic being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I think of it kind of musically, like our seven chakras are like these note, these places that can resound. Right? We can make, we can create this internal um, ensemble of, yeah. of right. That, I that love that. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, that's beautiful, and that really that ties in really beautifully with what we can talk about in a little bit, which is your um, you sort of end on a musical note in your book and the importance of music, which I thought was really beautiful. Um, and just to continue in this kind of chakra vein, because I think it's kind of interesting. So, uh, I mean, what what you're noting and what I think is why I find these traditions so captivating is that the tantrics just were, they seem to have been such master systematizers and they created systems in such a way that the internal logic of the system just made so much sense, even in an, on an intuitive level, you know, it just, it, they really were able to kind of take all of the, these diverse kind of, um, conceptual vocabularies and tie them into some kind of beautiful kind of conceptual aesthetic, um, but when you in your book you mention that the muladhara, it's like that that in the this tradition the the meditation about the muladhara will bring a, a kind of um, material wealth, which is very actually very similar to what the kind of Western psychological appropriation has been of the muladhara chakra, where the muladhara chakra is often associated with um, with kind of, you know, financial stability and, you know, stability on all levels, like sense of grounding. So how far, um, I'm, I mean, I'm not sure, you know, how much you're privy to the kind of modern psychological understanding, but how far can we take this, um, this complementarity between what the Sarvamnaya system seems to be saying about um, what's associated, you know, I don't know, psychologically or psychophysically with these, you know, different levels of the chakra system with what has sort of been handed down into the popular vocabulary of the chakras. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a deep question. And then you've got people like Carl Jung, um, obviously, and, and many others kind of involved, involved in the historical process of translating the t- chakra system into Western currency, right? Yeah. Um, I think as a really basic place to begin, we have to remember that Tantra, among its other claims, is bringing to the initiate not just moksha or spiritual freedom and transcendence of the suffering inherent with embodied existence, but also boga, the, the, the enjoyment of embodiment. And within that context of bringing the enjoyment of embodiment, the goddess as Lakshmi, and, and, and the goddess of the Muladhara in the Sarvamnaya tradition is Hatakeshi, the, the golden goddess, effectively, and that's Lakshmi. And so she really embodies that idea that there is a kind of living here on earth where you have the material goods you need to live, you know, a satisfying, content life. And, and that's, there, there is a kind of blessing in that. It's not the only path. 
it, the, the path of the ascetic, uh, the path of poverty can also, of course, be noble, but it is, it is a legitimate path. And in that context, I think tantrics take very seriously, like, yes, this, this mantra, this ritual, this mandala, you do, or yantra, really, you do this practice, and it will generate the power to give you physical abundance and enjoyment of, of, of physical existence. And for some, you know, that's, we can judge them and say, well, they, because they're shallow-minded or they didn't complete the process. <laughs> some, that's all they're looking for, yeah. right? Uh, but someone like Stanisław Timosina, who it, it once is a, a top-tier scholar, and by the way, tech, check out his Tantric Visual Culture, published by Routledge, and uh, wonderful for addressing this question about the, the multi-levels of, of, of chakra systems and what it all means, and, and he gets into just really rich Western metaphor theory, um, and he'd be a great interview. Okay. Uh, what was the name of that text? Tantric Visual Culture? Tantric Visual Culture, and it's by Stanisław Timosina. Okay. Um, yeah, so continuing with that question, what someone like Stanisław would say is, you got to keep moving, mm. you know? And, and so, yeah, there is that, you know, the enjoyment of the embodied, that's great, but the greatest enjoyment of the body actually is that, Literally, the bliss, the ananda shakti that arises within the being of the practitioner who's engaged in the highest states of meditative practice. And when that bliss arises, you do not need anything, mm -hmm. right? It is its own fulfillment. It is the nectar of immortality actually being released through the completion of the rise of kundalini shakti. And so that, and that's also then the point where enjoyment of the world becomes transcendence of the world and of course vice versa mm. so now you know we're we're talking about this this rich tradition and you know when i was reading your book i f i mean i found it so profoundly beautiful and it made me like immediately want to go to nepal and kind of pilgrimage to these sites that you're talking about and so i'm kind of wondering and you know you spent time there as well you know what were you were you ever practitioner of these traditions? I mean, you, you know what? Uh, given this, like the beautiful kind of fecundity and and uh, of this tradition, like how how did you end up moving away from it to something you know more? I don't know. I I I know that there are there's a diverse range of Buddhist traditions, but I always think of <laughs> my general kind of thought about the Buddhist traditions is they they're less flowerful, whereas this is such a flowerful tradition. Yeah, good question. Um, well, you know, they are flowerful, and, and the flowerful traditions are Baroque. They're complex, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it's, you know, I got into these mantra practices and the yantra visualizations. It was great. I did, you know, I did these different uh, 108,000 repetitions. It took however many japa turns. And, uh, you know, but Abhinavagupta has a system that, um, Swami Muktananda kind of adopted, and it was this idea of, of the upayas, the, the paths, yeah. spiritual fulfillment, and they, there's four of them. And you know, it's kind of debated whether or not they're supposed to be progressive, etc. I've published a couple pieces that suggest they are progressive. I take that interpretation, at least they can be. And, mm -hmm. and the first stage is where you're really grounded in um, yogic 
practices. Again, I've got an aesthetic mindset. You're, you're turning inward. You're learning to cultivate your inner cognitive powers and also control your senses so you can start to refine them and enable your senses not to just to relish what's outside of us, but also what's inside of us. Mm. And then in the next stage, you move into the use of mantra, the yeah. shakta, upaya. Uh, and then in the shambhava, the third stage, it, it's you're moving towards a stage where they talk about the idea of the use of the will. And there's kind of less reliance on ritual procedures and breath control and so forth. And then the final stage is the anupaya, literally the non-path, where it's the idea is, well, if, you're, if the goal of this practice is to recognize that the deity you seek is your own inner self vibrating, mm. right, that self-awareness, then at least in theory, anything and everything you do is an expression and experience of that. Mm. Um, and... I, I would think in my own case, and I want to be careful here because I'm not trying to claim at all that, you know, I'm some kind of master and, you know, therefore I don't need practice because that's not true. I, I don't believe that at all. And I'm not sure the journey ever ends. And I, I'm definitely very wary having myself seen how gurus rise and fall that you have to be very careful about claiming to be anything, even if it's true. And in my case, I know it's not, you know, I'm just an ordinary human being. But I do think what happened to me is that, you know, when I had my Shaktipat awakening at age 10 on the eve of Shivaratri, I dove in. I mean, I suddenly became this high school junior about to really, I was kind of failing out of school. Uh, I suddenly was waking up 536 to chant the Guru Gita and other chants and meditate. As a junior in high school? As a junior in wow, high school. Wow, that's amazing. I, I lost friends. <laughs> Yeah, I lost a really sweetheart girl, and I mean, they were just like, you've gone out of your mind. Wow. But it's what I wanted to do, and I kind of maintained that real strong focus for about 14 years, and that extended through my research in Nepal for my dissertation. Um, and then, you know, gradually, I just, um, I kind of just naturally let a lot of that go and shifted to what I felt was more important, which was trying to maintain in all moments that awareness that that self that looks through me is, is, is the deity I'm seeking. Mm. Um, and in Buddhism, I found, you know, I, I met teachers and also found practices that really informed that idea, you know, whether it was in Zen Buddhist traditions or Dzogchen or others. And, you know, I've never seen a conflict at all. Yeah. I mean, Sri Yantra is, is still the centerpiece of my house. I have Hindu deities all over the place. And so, you know, when people ask me, what are you? I tend to say I'm Buddhist. It's kind of easiest. People are have less misconceptions about what that might mean. But really, you know, I'm an initiate of, of, both the Trikakala tradition, um, which I see is absolutely connected to the Sarvamnaya and, and includes Muktananda, and then and then also the Tibetan Buddhist traditions, and, and really just they're both consistent. You know, Hinduism can be very flowery. Buddhist Tibetan Buddhism, can yeah, be Tibetan very Buddhism, become very simplified, and it's it's just there for you. And I think you have to trust your natural predilection in the moment. Mm. You know. And, and, and find what it is that you need to ingest 
you know, metaphorically in order to be fed mm. spiritually. Oh, that's beautiful. So, you know, I like what you're describing is you know, the idea that they're not in conflict. And I think that's sort of the spirit of embodied philosophy is try, is try to share, you know, um, literature and educational experiences about these traditions, but not in a way that, in a way that respects and honors the lineage streams, but also uh, allows one to see that they're not, you know, I don't, I don't know what the maybe correct word is, or that there's something ontologically separated about them, or, or that you know they have some kind of fundamental conflict that wouldn't allow one to kind of um, reside within the kind of milieu of one and and the other. So, you know, when you encounter moments where the uh, where maybe the I don't know the 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 map of one tradition conflicts with another, and maybe you don't experience this. Maybe that's what you're saying. Um, what what do you sort of appeal to? Is it is it just kind of the is it the Buddhist tradition that you're currently um, entrenched in? I don't I don't know. I can't really give an example, and so maybe there isn't one. But um, do you do you understand essentially what yeah. I'm asking? Okay, right. It is. So I mean, do I have, in other words, like. Uh, one tradition that stands as the ultimate authority in you know moments of philosophical yeah yeah lack of clarity or ethical conundrums or whatever it might yeah, be exactly. a great question um, you know non-dual philosophy which we find in both the buddhist and the hindu traditions i, I think they come into so much fundamental alignment that philosophically there's rarely a conflict across the traditions, but within the traditions, I do take the logic of non-dualism as superior to the logic of dualism. And so for, whether from a Buddhist or a Hindu perspective in conversations and debates I've ever had with people, um, I don't ever hesitate to resort to those traditions on whatever issue is being discussed, right? Whether it's practice or... Uh, any anything else, and uh, as far as ethics go, um, however, I also um, think it's really you know Muktananda used to say, um, you know, yes, worship the guru because the guru is the self, and and the self is God, but ultimately, you are the self, right? Mm -hmm. And there has to be that point where you really come to trust yourself in terms of what is wrong and right and what it is that must be done. And, um, you know, I think that we get in, in that conversation, it becomes in part intuition, right? Um, and, and just trusting that, you know, this or that is wrong because there are circumstances in our life where, you know, it, you can't necessarily go to the Tantra Loka 3.24 to decipher whether or not God is telling you to vote for Hillary or Trump, you know, I mean, that's just a whatever, or, you know, another example, and we can talk about politics if you like, but, uh, you know, another example might be, I mean, I think a simple one would be, okay, animal sacrifices. A lot of Hindus endorse animal sacrifice. I, I have very mixed feelings about that, you know, right. so the, the taking of a life. Um, etc. So then, um, in that context, maybe you could say, well, a kind of Buddhist nonviolent logic kicks in. So, uh, I. Um, so there's a set, there's a kind of pragmatic domain to this. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Where 
where I really think, and I do think, Abhinava Gupta, that tradition is basically saying, like, this is a training about, you know, you coming to recognize that your body is the house for consciousness, right? And mm. it, there's only one consciousness spread throughout all of the cosmos, and that consciousness, it's ever-present, it's all-knowing, and it, coming to trust that that consciousness is what's speaking through you, that's how you come to know. Right. Hmm. That's great. But I'd also say that I think ethically, you know, I mean, Tantra gets a hard rap, but, you know, ethically, certainly in Muktananda's interpretation of Tantra, um, you know, generally, Tantric ethics is really actually grounded fundamentally in the wisdom of nonviolence and compassion, particularly that's strong in Buddhist traditions with the whole bodhisattva ideal, right? Yeah. That your salvation is contingent on the salvation of all living beings. Yeah, yeah. So to get back for a minute to the to the traditions in Nepal that you explore in your book, you know, I um, I was thinking while I was reading it, you know, wow, this is such a beautiful tradition, and and I imagine those that read the book who are practitioners would maybe be very feel very inspired to kind of study those traditions. But then there's this sensitivity to the fact that the the tradition seems to be very much integrated with a particular geography in fact that's you know part of what your book's about is this is the kind of um the geographical contingency um of this sarvamnaya tradition and and the various geographical points and temples and cities that are that are related to it and of course there is an esoteric dimension but is there anything you know first of all can someone who is from outside Nepal, can a non-Nepalese person move to Nepal and 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 take initiation into these traditions without, um, you know, is that is there anything inherently problematic with that? And then the second question besides that would be, does it make sense to, you know, especially when we talk about in a moment, you know, the historical political forces that are leading to the degradation or the, you know, the kind of end of the centrality of these traditions in Nepal, um, it, it, will, will, does it make sense for this tradition to leave Nepal? Like, can it leave Nepal given how geographically connected it is? Yeah. Those are very deep questions. And of course, obviously, you get people real fired, fired up about sure. the hot topic cultural appropriation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I can offer my opinion. <laughs> and, um, it's kind of, I mean, obviously, I operate a lot through both and, and yeah. kind of middle, middle ground logic. So That's great. I really respect the cultural appropriateness argument. Um, but the other side of that is the fact that traditions are constantly in flux. Right. There's no word tradition. Traditions like Trikakal and Sarvamnaya come into being because they transmigrate. Yeah. Right. And someone from somewhere else appropriates them and puts them together with something else. And this is how wisdom, knowledge, cultures expand. Um, so as far as Westerners going to Nepal and receiving initiation, I mean, I did it, right? I mean, and I, I think in part, Stanishwar and others looked at me and said, well, you're, you're kind of a cultural freak. I mean, basically, you, you know, some even said, well, you must be a, re you know, you must be, your last incarnation must have been in Nepal. You know, so you're just uh, coming back, right? Yeah. So you're just chilling, yeah. Up, you, our tradition surrounded you. So here you are, fine, no big deal. 
Uh, I think it's case by case how much information folks are going to want to give up. But also what happens in, in so many cultures, as it did in Tibet, so in Nepal, I mean, the world comes to Nepal, Nepal goes to the world, all sorts of cultural forces come into play. You get someone like Astonishwar Timosina, who's is really, I mean, I identify him in my book as a modern day Abhinavagupta, and I think that's fair in, in terms of his scholarly breadth. Wow. And, you know, part of what makes Astonishwar so amazing is he didn't just master the Vedas when he was young and then Vedanta and yoga and Samkhya and Vaisheshika and, and just go on and on and do all of this stuff so that by the time he was 22, he was already being given his own tantric department at the Balmiki College of Sanskrit, wow. right? Uh, he was hanging out with David Gordon White and, and um, all sorts of, of, of outstanding Western and European scholars and learning from them and wanting to study Western philosophy and master English. And now, as a 50-year-old man, I mean, he really lives in all of these worlds and Absolutely. He, you know, he's never lost his connection to his Sarva Amnaya tradition, and he's tirelessly sharing everything that he can. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it really takes just one person like Astonishwar or Muktananda or Dalai Lama to say, you know what, these are secret traditions. I know that was, there was a good reason for that. Times have changed. We're throwing these doors open. Mm. Um, now, it is true that these traditions get very much grounded in local geographies, languages, cultures. And so what I think has to happen, and this is why I recommended to you Stanishwar's tantric visual culture, is because what he's trying to do through that is offer the tantric code, kind of the Ur code, for thinking about these place-based traditions and understanding how you can take those you can take the logic of that grounding in a legitimate way and then reapply that logic to the place that you are. Mm -hmm. And that's brilliant. And I think there's a lot of work that can be done with that, right? Yeah. Uh, and so I think both are somewhat legitimate. I think if you're going to go to Nepal and get initiated, you do really have to throw yourself into that local culture. And I yeah. can't really see how long it takes. It takes a while, right? right. you got to language. But well, that was I, and that was another thing I was sort of interested in, you know, with the six streams. Like, how does long does it take to get initiated into each one of those? Yeah. Well, long time, I, right? <laughs> I got fast tracked in the course. I just, you know, what lucky I mean? you, man. So, Donishwar, by the end of a year, had done all of them. Whoa. You know, and I, I, I don't know if I, I don't know how to say how legitimate. I, I mean, I think ideally. It would have happened in a more classical way over a much longer duration. I would have right. had time to do each of the initiations, um, but he did it, you know, and, I, and he did it in part because I was writing the book. And I think in part because he felt like, well, there's also a level where this, you know, this is a system that's coming together. It's working. It has a result that even kind of transcends your own perspective on whether or not it's doing anything. Yeah. Uh, so answers, are, I think, are going to vary on that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think Stanishwar's answer to it is a very interesting one. I, I've heard other people like him say, you know, we have to adapt to the times. And, and knowledge, consciousness is speeding up, you know. Mm. The advancement of technology all over the world, you know, Tantra is a technology. And, and so 
that technology, it's also, it's speeding up. The, degree, the speed with which it can be handed off. And also, you know, and I think folks like Douglas Brooks and others have said this, you know, it needs to be transmitted. Right. Right, because it's a, it's a, you know, here comes that faith perspective. Um, this is a wisdom that if imparted, enlightens people to learn so that they can live in the places that they habitate in ways that are conducive to the people and places there. Yeah, yeah. So Stanishwar, you've you've mentioned him as kind of a master. Uh, it, does he also initiate in these traditions, or is he simply is he a scholar mainly? No, I mean he he has he initiated me. He is okay. a scholar practitioner. Um, before I met him, he was you know very strongly identified already. By the t- I should say by the time I met him as both a, a preeminent. Um, lineage holder for Sarvam Nayashakta Tantra, and then also a scholar who was the head of his own department of Tantra. Mm. Uh, and going forward from there, he went through uh, a period where I think he was really focused on proving to the West that he could be a Western scholar. And he went to Germany and got a, a, a second PhD there and, and, and went to Santa Barbara for a while, and then he got his position, and now he's full professor, and he's published so much stuff, and, and he's just so widely respected. And I think now, as it were, having climbed to the summit of the scholarly mountain, I think he's, he's up there looking around going, and you know what, like, I, I, my deepest self, the, the part of my life that I've always loved the most is my life of, of, of devotion and relationship to the goddess and I'm going to be that person and I am a scholar. That's um, beautiful. And so now he's giving workshops and, and for people who are genuinely interested, he will give this knowledge. That's excellent. So where can people find him? I'm just curious since we're talking so much about him. Yeah, well, he's not hidden. I mean, if you, so if you go to San Diego State University, Google his, or, you know, search field his name, you'll find him. He's okay. on Facebook. Um... I think if you Google him, you'll find, you know, he's on academia.edu. Certainly, if you sent him an email to his San Diego State University or, or friend him on Facebook and just say, hey, you know, I'm, I just did this podcast with Jeffrey and, you know, been reading his book. I'd love to interview you, too. Um, I'm sure he'd be happy to do that and, and talk further. I mean, he's just, I think for a lot of us, you know, I was thinking about this podcast. It's the first podcast I've ever done, and I just... It, you know, you get so immersed into your scholarship, and it's it really ultimately is a fairly small world yeah. uh, of people who share this interest with you. You know, I mean, there's an overlap with practitioners, but the practitioners who, like, really want to know, like, well, what is the Sri Yantra all about? Those are few and far between. So I think myself and, and certainly Astonish for anyone who has that genuine interest, it's like, yeah, let's, talk, yeah. let's hang out. <laughs> yeah, no, and it, it is, they are few and far between, but I think that collectively there are actually a quite a large number, which is why it's important, I think, to build that community online of people that are that are interested in it because it is a it, you know it's a it's a it's a minority, but it's a large minority at the end of the day. <clears throat> so yes, and go folks ahead. like you know Paul Muller and Douglas Brooks and Harish Wallace, they're really they're connected to that, you know, and in a really rich way, and and. and you know, connecting with that community, it's, it's, I think it's a, well, long story short, I think he'd appreciate it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely interested in doing that. Okay. So let's talk about a couple more things before we wrap up our conversation. <clears throat> One of sure. them is the, um, 
the you know the history of antinomian practices within you know the tantric tradition obviously we um well, i won't say obviously because maybe some aren't familiar but you know the tantric tradition has a a, a history of 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 practices that are are sort of um, unsavory to the contemporary practitioner, you know, the exchange of bodily fluids, ritualized sex. Um, and, and, you know, and historically this took sort of a turn in, you know, with Abhinavagupta, as you mentioned in your book, into a more kind of esoteric symbolic domain. And of course, you know, I study with Paul and, and that's sort of the way that it's always described. I mean, these are sort of symbolic, um, things. So, um, you know, I, I think this is very interesting. Like what, you know, has, is the antinomian, aspect of tantra missing now that it's become sort of you know symbolically registered or what is the role of antinomianism in the practice of tantra yeah very good so so you know it's like all of these historical layers get systematized by someone like abhinavagupta but they don't go away right right? and and they still exist to today i mean you go to benares and, and you can find the the, the Agora Babas, you know, still going to the cremation grounds. Right. He's claiming eat feces and, you know, doing all this radical stuff. Yeah. Uh, so it is still there. And, it, it, you know, it's, it's a minority practice, but it, it does still exist. And I think, you know, what was the purpose of it and, and what still is, at least within the context of non-dual tantric systems, which really, I think, are dominant certainly today. They're the most popular forms of Tantra. The logic of antinomian practices is pretty clear. It's about saying, well, okay, reality, at least socially constructed reality, is predicated on all these dualities, right Mm -hmm. and wrong, man and woman, death and life, right, that assume opposites. Yeah. Ultimately, the truth is that there is a non-dual reality containing within and beyond these dualities, then it can at least be a very powerfully transformative moment to engage in that which you ought not to engage in. Yeah. As a direct encounter with that consciousness which transcends these rules that create a socially constructed, you know, reality. So I think, you know, that the logic of that is still at play, even as Tantra kind of through Abhinavagupta and others sheds the necessity to do really outrageous things. I, and it's really, a, I think it's a, it's a, it's a careful line to be walked. And I think as you look at a lot of guru traditions, you see the danger of this kind of logic in, you know, the, the very common reality of the of the inevitable, not always, but often sexual scandal. Yeah. Um, that we see in, in many guru traditions. Um, and so obviously, you know, there's a, there's a real need to be careful with playing with ethical systems. Um, yeah, I mean, that's interesting because I, and I mean, I know of one where, you know, that, that, um, the sexual scandal then was sort of defended or justified as being sort of a, you know, from the insider's perspective, it was, it, they were tantric practices that, you know, at, were at the end of kind of like initiatory gateways, blah, blah, blah. But then, you know, from, and this might move us into the question of power dynamics, and, but then, you know, from from an external vantage point, it just looks like, 
an abuse of power. And right. so, you know, so I guess it's, I don't know, it's interesting. It's an interesting kind of um, dynamic. And so, and, and when you were, when you were saying the antinomian, it does seem that to, to be that, you know, in order to really experience that that non-duality, you would need to kind of challenge your own presuppositions about reality, your, your own presupposed kind of, you know, feelings of disgust over certain things. And so are we losing, you know, modern, you know, more symbolic non-dual practitioners, are we losing that <clears throat> that that radical experience of the non-dual by by not entertaining these kinds of um radical acts yeah that's it yes it's a great question and i think one of the beauties is the of the abhinavagupian system right tantra as formulated by abhinavagupta otherwise trikakala or kalatrika tantra is that he really takes the focus of the tradition to what he sees as his apex, which is a cognitive act of self-recognition, right? Pratyabhijna. And once you make that turn, then all sorts of things become possible cognitively, mm-hmm. emotionally, experientially. And I think it, it's really, it, it's, it's up to each, I think, practitioner in their own practice and in relationship with the, with the teacher they trust who's guiding them, whether that's you know, they're th- themselves or someone else to um, explore for him or herself how it is that they are going to catapult their consciousness into this higher state of awareness. Um, you know, and m- maybe just one simple example. Let, you know, I, I never was homophobic, but let's say I was grow I was raised in, in, in a home, maybe here in the South, perhaps on a farm, where I, where I was just, it was just ingrained in me to be homophobic. Mm-hmm. So that would set up for me then, right, this ingrained consciousness of something as being wrong. And maybe later in my life, I came to encounter Tantra and in the context of Tantra in, in my own meditative experiences and perhaps experiences with other people in my life, I started to recognize that here I was, trying to understand that one singular divine consciousness pulsates in all beings, and yet I was looking to one group of people and their sexual behavior as being okay and good, and I was judging another, right, and seeing them in a negative way. And so maybe then for me, that kind of antinomianism would be my own process of deconstructing a very deeply ingrained bias through a kind of exercise in which that negative other, you know, I transcended that concept. It became a good, mm-hmm. um, which is not to say that it might also be the case. And, you know, it's so hard for me to say what anyone, you know, maybe you're a vegetarian. I, this happened for me. I was vegetarian. I became a meat eater for a period. Um, sexual ethics becomes more complex. Of course, sexual practice is a part of tantric practice it's not an uh, it's not a mandatory part it's just it's present within it it's logical that it's there because the tradition is about the uniting of male and female and all the various registers of that and it's about the body and so obviously sexual union um, is going to be a part of that both as symbol and as practice so 
I think the, the, the options are still there for people to experience that kind of antinomian transcendence. I do not think it's mandatory to go meditate on corpses and yeah. well, be feasting and do all that stuff. Well, what, I, what you're sort of pointing to that I think is really interesting is that, you know, what you're sort of inviting us to think about is kind of what contextually makes sense as an antinomian uh, practice in the modern, you know, era. And one of our, you know, one of our biggest social phenomena that we all struggle with, I think, at, at, at every perspective, whether you consider yourself liberal or conservative, is the idea of the negative other that you're talking about, which, of course, ultimately is in oneself and then manifests yeah. as, you know, homosexuals or trans people or people of a particular ethnicity. So maybe that is, you know, and then, you know, going back to eating feces or eating meat, like these were, these were materials that, you know, were actually, you know, very much socially, there was a whole, you know, ideology around not part eating meat and blah, blah, blah. So it would make sense that it, within that con con context, you know, right. antinomianism would kind of circulate around those particular things when if we, you know, take ourselves now into our kind of contemporary context, you know, the antinomian really is this, you know, what do we see continuously percolating up into our experiences with one or one another what are the arguments on on facebook always about you know they're about this like this you know vilification of other people and right. and so it's so so i love that i actually really love that idea of you know allowing the antinomianism of tantric practice really to be to confront that negative other that really does shape and 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 create our own, you know, dialogue and, and discourse with each other. Yeah, that's, that's very well put. And, um, what you said, you know, reminds us all that Tantra arises in a world that included, if not, if it was not dominated by traditional Brahmanic Vedic society and culture, right. Which was heavily hierarchical and grounded in codes of purity. And so the logic of Tantra was in no small part about reclaiming power within mm. a system that could very easily disempower individuals, yeah. right? Lower caste, non-accepted genders, whatever it might be. And so I think that's another way to think about the message of power is, or sorry, the message of Tantra and how you relocate it into the place that you are Right. It's a it's a it's a system of logic about empowering oneself in all in all the senses of the word, you know, and they're different. You know, the Tantra has systems of thought that are more negative, like we could say dark sorcery. But I think, you know, the higher Tantra, I think what Trika Kaul is about, especially as someone like Muktananda taught it, what, you know, the Dalai Lama's Tantric Buddhism is all about is really kind of recognizing the fundamental dignity, not just of, of oneself and all human beings, but all of life, right? And so I think higher Tantra should result in the perspective that we should hold in the highest regard all beings. Mm -hmm. and, and we should act in such a way. Yeah. Beautiful. So I think to translate that into our contemporary political, social political environment, I think it's a very important task. Yeah, me too. 
Wow. So, okay. So one more question, because I, I really do want to get to this before we close. And because I was, you know, thinking about this a lot and it, it kind of connects with my own history as well, which is the question of, of power. And in your book, you know, you straddle the, the, the kind of post-structuralist critique of power relations, or I, I don't know if you want to, if I would say straddle, but you at least entertain, you know, these critiques in your, um, in your exploration. And that, so that critique, and then the theological perspective, which of course, you know, um, you know, looks to the liberating character of these traditions, whereas the, the post-structuralist um, critic would only be able to see the kind of binding nature of these traditions and how they are just, you know, um, uh, different um, articulations of power, blah, blah, blah. So wh- what, you know, and what is the, um, in your own consideration, you seem not to make a choice between the two. You seem to kind of entertain, you know, the, 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 the critiques of the post-structure so far as they go in the sense that, you know, uh, you know, especially in the conversation around Kumari, who's a, you know, a, I don't know, five-year-old girl that's been kind of, um, uh, sort of ushered in as this stand in for this goddess Kumari, you know, and so there's, there's the kind of level, there's a power dynamic at play that sort of instantiating and legitimizing a certain, um, um, political system. But then there's also the, 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 you know, the, the theological character of it. So, so can you just talk a little bit about that and sort of what the role is of these two different lenses and how they sit, you know, how they sit with you as a, as a scholar practitioner? Yeah. So that interpretive lens is really my effort to take the emic or insiders internal theological logic of the system and really to take it seriously. Yeah. Because the, the logic of the system is, is grounded in, in much older traditions. Um, you see both the Buddhist Nagarjuna and, and then also the Hindu uh, Shankaracharya, both using a two-truths logic about, in which they're assuming a distinction between a constructed reality and a transcendent reality. And so I, I wanted to understand how those two could interplay um, within this tradition. And I wanted to take seriously what seemed to be the case, which is that the authors of the texts I was reading were assuming kind of, they, were, they were living in a world that took seriously a theological position that there is some divine transcendent being that creates all this and is the source of all of this. And at the same time, let's not kid ourselves. We're human beings. You know, we, we're, we're creating these rituals and these ideas and we're using language and, and it's connected to a network of practices and institutions. Mm-hmm. It's all going on at the same time. So they're operating from the assumption that one doesn't um, remove the presence of the other. Right. Right. But how can they then work together? Um, and at what points do they come into contradiction? And basically what I was trying to get it is sure. I mean, the kind of materialist Marxist, later Foucauldian idea that human beings are creating their knowledge systems and those are embedded in institutions and 
all of that becomes inseparably linked to hierarchical structures of power, that that's always at play, yes. But could it not also be the case that the very capacity of human beings to kind of bind themselves is in fact uh, a reflection of some kind of transcendent power that's nonetheless operative e even in the moment of the binding. And, you know, and obviously you have to be aware of how any kind of reference to a transcendent can be just used as justification for the logic and authenticity of the system, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I did want to take seriously that, that this is what these Nepali authors were suggesting. And it's really not to say, it's not to say that never challenge the system, you know, never fight oppression. That's, I don't think that's at all what they're saying, right. you know. Um, and, and so, and also, as I kind of suggested earlier, this argument that I was trying to make, like take, take the, the insider's logic of the tradition, take it seriously, but then, you know, think about it critically and bring it up with other systems of knowledge, re reflected a, a kind of balancing that I was trying to create within myself as someone who spent about 10 years being a somewhat naive Bhakta devotee mm. uh, and, and then being kind of deconstructed and falling for a while into a really kind of hypercritical post-structuralist, even atheist kind of perspective, and then kind of bringing it back and seeing, well, within the logic of non-dualism, at what point does a theist, at what point does a theist and a non, or an atheist even meet? Mm. Right? Someone who's totally grounded in, this is a human reality, someone grounded in, this is a God reality. Well, from the logic of Tantra, how do you distinguish between a God and a human reality? Yeah. Mm. So how do you get the atheists to agree with that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, there, there is tradition of philosophy in the West, you know, material non-dualism. Really? And so from that kind of perspective, so, cause you know, the 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 understanding of atheism that I appreciate the most is one that was used by Roman pagans against Christians and and by ancient Christians in turn against pagans, which was just a way of saying you're atheist because you reject the normative theological tradition. Right. Right. So you can be someone who rejects normative theological traditions and assumptions, but that doesn't mean you assume that there isn't one singular consciousness intelligence that is everywhere embedded in this cosmos, yeah. connecting at all points, right? I mean, there are scientific theories from folks like David Bohm that say that exactly. Yeah. And so I think in my own mind, as I, as I started to call into question, you know, well, you know, what is the guru really? What is Shiva really? I, I found that I never lost sight of that. Somehow I could, I could never reject the idea of intelligence, of consciousness, of experience. And so in that context, it really, I just came, well, okay, so if I talk about God, to use that language, I'm automatically in the realm of dualism, at least potentially show. Yeah, right? yeah. So Because but, God, because the, the name of God invokes something external to you? Exactly. Okay. It can, right? It doesn't, it can be redefined, but yeah, it can. And so then atheism is kind of 
of course, it rejects that, but it doesn't have to reject the idea that it's all consciousness, which, of course, is what Trikakala was teaching. And therein, I realized, like, it's just labels, right? Label yeah. me a theist. Label me an atheist. I'm still a conscious being. And, and I believe that consci the consciousness that I am experiencing, I believe that consciousness is everywhere present in the cosmos. And obviously, that's, that becomes faith, right? I mean, I, scientists can suggest to us that, that it's right and here's why, but I can't possibly know for sure that my consciousness is everywhere present in the cosmos. But I do believe that it is, that not Jeffrey's consciousness, but that I'm sharing that consciousness. Yeah, you're participating in that absolute consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's a beautiful note to end on, the note of absolute consciousness being everywhere. So, yeah. um, so you know, before we cl close things down, if you want to share a little bit about any, I don't know if you're doing any workshops or if you have any um, presentations that you're doing that are coming up that people who are listening to the podcast might want to tune into or look you up or if you have a website you want to share, anything like that. Oh yeah, thank you very much. So you know, I'm I'm a I'm the chair of the Department of Religion and Philosophy at Barry, uh, and you know that that's really what grounds my work. Um, and I'm raising a three year old, so my my summer is devoted a lot to that. But yeah, um, that's a handful. It's a handful, but I, I definitely invite listeners to my academia. Uh, page academia.edu uh, Jeffrey S. Litke you'll find me uh, just about everything I've published is is up there um, and and then my book which we've talked about um, maybe I can send you the link to that that is available for purchase so I would definitely invite folks to that and you know if, if folks uh, have heard things that they'd like to talk further about please reach out via email or Facebook academia and um, I'd be happy to start conversations you know Excellent. if someone for example is listening from a yoga center it's like oh well that might be nice if he came and talked about that I'm, I'm definitely open and too and i've done those things um i just i'm not currently i'm not actively currently engaged in you know doing that but i enjoy doing that Excellent. All right. Well, I'm sure there will be some opportunities that come up from this. We've had a lot of that happen. So thank you so much for talking to me, Jeffrey. It's been a real pleasure. And, um, and I will look forward to speaking with you soon. Wonderful. Thank you. The, the pleasure has been mine. All right.